Over Christmas break my sophomore year, came back home to Denver, and my mom set me up on a blind date with one of her college friend's daughter. They were in town to visit another loved one who was sick. They were from California, and my mom said, hey, she's never been to Denver before. Can you show her around? I'm like, oh, man, I don't know, right? Uh, my first question was, what does she look like, right? <laughs> Um, anyway, went and picked her up on a Saturday morning, and we hung out all day and all morning in Denver. She said, hey, I've got some friends that are staying in Boulder uh, this weekend. Uh, can we go see them? And I said, sure, let's go do that. So we drove up to Boulder, and she found out that they were actually snow skiing at uh, Eldora Ski Resort or Ski Mountain. It's about 30 minutes west of, of, uh, of Boulder. So we went up there. It's a small place, a small ski mountain, so we didn't have to wait very long until she saw one of her friends, and then... You know, they motioned to each other and everybody came down. Everybody was hugging her and stuff and and uh, meet one of the guys and who walks away. And then I meet other people and she goes, oh, by the way, that guy's my ex-boyfriend. So I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah this is great. And then uh, meet everybody else. And then the ex-boyfriend comes back and says, hey, uh, tonight we're all, or actually in a little while, we're all going to go and uh, have pizza and watch movies at, and then they point at this other guy, at his house. Uh, which was about another 30 minutes from the ski mountain. Uh, you guys should come with us. And she's like, yeah, that sounds great. She looks at me and I'm like, yes, that sounds great. I would love to go hang out with your ex-boyfriend and all of his friends on my date. That's That sounds awesome. So, we, I mean, I didn't say it exactly like that, but we get in the car and she goes, are you sure that's okay? And I'm like, yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. At that point, I was like, there is no future in this relationship. So uh, we went up to this guy's house. We're all sophomores in college, about plus or minus a year. So we're like anywhere between 19 and 21 years old. And there's about, I don't know, like 25 of us. And we drive up this driveway. And this house is way nicer than what a 20 or 21-year-old kid should own. So I say, is this his parents' house? She goes, no, it's his house and his best friend. I'm like, well, who's his best friend? And she goes, oh, well, his best friend is, is a, a guy named Tony Hawk. And I'm like, a guy named Tony Hawk? You mean Tony Hawk, Tony Hawk? I was like, yeah, you know him? I'm, this is in 1990, so he wasn't as famous in 1990 as he is now. I mean, in 1990, I was 20 and he's 21, so I'm only a year younger than Tony Hawk. But even when I was 20 and he's 21, everybody still knew. I've known who Tony Hawk was since I was like 12, and he was only 13. So yeah, I know who Tony Hawk is. And I'm in his house, and I walk in, I'm like, this house is nice, right? It's really nice. Um... And it's got a wraparound porch. You can see the valley, mountains on the other side, the ski mountain outdoors down there. And over there a little bit more, you can see, uh, you can see, you know, the lights from Boulder. It man, it was a really, really nice place. Velvet paintings of prints everywhere. Somebody, either this dude or or Tony Hawk loves prints, but there were more velvet paintings of prints than any than any yard sale I've ever been to. Uh, it was awesome. And I asked, hey, is, is Tony going to be here? No, he's not. It's just his best friend or whatever. Anyway, he owned a couple of houses, probably owns more than that now. Um, it was ended up being like this really cool experience. They had a hot tub built into one of the bedrooms downstairs. So when you open up the door, you actually have to climb into the hot tub from the door. Like they built the walls around all of the stuff they had downstairs in the house. It was, it was crazy. So I've been hot tubbing at Tony Hawk's house. That's what I tell people. I just don't tell anybody that Tony Hawk wasn't there. But when I woke up that day, I didn't know what to expect, right? She was a cool girl, so I was like, oh, this is getting good. Then there's the boyfriend, and I'm like, oh, this is getting bad. And then there's the, you know, Tony Hawk's house. I'm like, it ended up being a really cool story. 
but start off as just a regular day. And I'm wondering if you've ever had an experience like that, like something start off just as a regular day and it ended up being really cool. There's a girl in our youth group uh, when, I was, when I was a youth pastor in Denver. She got an airplane and sat next to uh, an actor named Eric Bana. And uh, they were talking and being super friendly. And when, when the flight was over, you know, he said goodbye and did the Hollywood thing where he kissed her on the lips. But she'd only ever kissed one other guy uh, before on the lips. And so like her second kiss was with this super famous guy. So she still talks about it. I'm sure she talked. She, that's all she talked about like for a whole year was her kiss from Eric Bana. I went hot tubbing like for real in person with Kiefer Sutherland from Lost Boys, from Young Guns. Uh, but that's a story for another day. I'm not going to share that one with you. Today, we're actually going to be looking at a story in the Bible where the disciples wake up thinking it's just going to be a normal day, but by the end of the day, they've experienced something that only a handful of people in all of human history have ever experienced. And that's what we're looking at today. Uh, now, in this series, uh, we've been talking about unveiling Jesus. Jesus says he reveals himself. In the first week, he reveals himself as judge. The second week, he reveals himself as the one who's greater than the Sabbath, greater than the law, greater than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, last week, Jesus is revealed as the Messiah. And this week, we're going to see Jesus fully unveiled as God in the flesh. And it was terrifying to the guys who had seen it. But we're going to back up just a little bit. Uh, from Matthew 17 into the end of Matthew 16. Because Jesus has just told his disciples that I will build my church on this massive rock that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'll give the church the keys to the kingdom of knowledge to open up the kingdom of God in men's hearts. Then he says, very plainly, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. But on the third day, I'll raise from the dead. Peter famously says, well, then let's not go to Jerusalem. This is a horrible idea. And Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. It's a famous line that Jesus said. And then he said, you're only looking at things from a temporal perspective. I'm playing a longer eternal game. And right out of that, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, then right after saying that, Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must also play the long game. How do we do that? You must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and actually follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what would you benefit if you could gain the whole world if it meant that you lost your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul for all of eternity? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, if that sounded cryptic to you, then you're going to love what happens next because three of them do get to see Jesus less than a week later in all of his kingdom fullness. And that's where we start this weekend's teaching in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. Now, we're going to, we're going to do this a little bit different. I'm going to read a verse. I'm going to make a couple of observations. I'll read another verse. We're just going to read nine verses. Uh, Matthew 17, 1 through 9. I'll make some observations. We'll get to the end, and I'll say, here's what we do with that. What I want to do with these observations along the way, though, is point out just things I thought of that this could help teach us. Because what I'm hoping 
is going to happen is while all of us who are part of this weekend service are coming to this same service from completely unique and different backgrounds with different and unique needs, looking for something completely unique, I'm hoping that what happens is God's gonna take something that's read out of the scriptures or said in response to the scriptures and make that stand out really big in your heart. That would be the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit, who is at work in the hearts of people, softening us towards our sin and pride, giving us the faith to turn from our sin, to begin following Jesus, to turn from our selfish ways, take up our cross and actually follow Jesus. So write down something that sticks with you. This is what it looks like for me to put down my selfish ways. This is what it looks like for me to take up a cross. This is what it looks like for me to follow in the ways of Jesus for the rest of my life. And then make that the thing that you focus on for the rest of the week. That's my hope. So here we go, verse one. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them on a high mountain to be alone. And there's a few things I wanna point out here. One is that it's six days later. Everywhere where this story is given, it's given three times in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't think it's in Mark. I think it's in Matthew, Luke, and John. I might have Mark or Luke mixed up. And either way, two of them say that there's six days in between. John talks about the eight days because he's including the day that Jesus had told Peter, get thee behind me, and he's including the day that this happens. The other two are talking about the six days in between. So if you end up reading that and you're like, why does two of them say six days and one of them says eight days? It's the way they're talking about the timeline, but it's the same thing that's happening. So what's happening during those six days? And in all three accounts of this story, absolutely nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. Except God's getting them to the place where this next thing is supposed to happen. And I think there's times in our lives where we feel like God's gone silent. And it's not that God's gone silent. It's that God's waiting on the right timing. And most often, my timing is not the same as his. So if you're in that place now where it feels like God has gone silent, I'm going to ask you to keep going uh, because it's just not the right time. I'll also say this that if you feel like it's been a long time since you've even heard from God, that you might need to do what Jesus and these three disciples did, and that's just get alone. Why did Jesus take them to the top of a mountain? Because there's nobody else going to be there. Jesus often, the Bible said, when he wanted to pray and hear from God, the Father, he would go off to a solitary place to pray, the Bible says. That Jesus would withdraw from the crowds into the mountains to pray. Like you see that all over. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, where Jesus was getting alone to speak to and hear from God. And one of the things that's convicting to me is how rarely I am alone without the presence of a screen or music. Like, I don't often leave room for God to speak softly into my heart because I'm constantly being filled up with input. Like we aren't comfortable with silence. We don't like being bored, but often it's in those moments of silence when we're getting bored that we begin talking to God and in the silence in between knowing what to say, we can often feel like God is saying something to us.
There you go. Maybe for some of you, that's what you need to do. You need to carve out space and time for God to speak into your life. You, you need your top of the mountain. You need your, like any other day of the week, that top of the mountain is just top of the mountain. But when you go there for a specific purpose, the top of the mountain can become a holy place. And you need your top of the mountain. Find some place where there's no screens, where there's no music, and make that space holy and spend time with God. So Jesus takes the disciples up to the top of the mountain, verse 2. Um, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Now there's one other time in the Bible where somebody's face shone and that's when Moses goes to the top of Mount uh, Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments from the Lord and he was in the presence of the Lord and having been exposed to the presence of the Lord which the Bible always describes as like emanating light like God created light before he even created the sun because he is the source of light. The sun is another source but every time the Bible describes the physical presence of God all of the authors that have these visions of God just describe brightness as of the sun type of stuff. Well, Moses is in the presence of God and coming down, his face close. It makes the people of Israel nervous, so they make him cover himself with a veil. But this is different because Jesus isn't glowing as though he's reflecting light. This verse says that Jesus's appearance is transformed and now becomes radiant, like the sun radiant, like light is actually coming out of him, which is the way God's physical appearance is described in the book of Genesis, Hosea, Psalms, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Habakkuk, and even 1 John chapter 1 describes light that comes from God. And the disciples get to see this. I read one commentator who said that the reason why it was important for these three disciples to see Jesus's fullness as God is to keep them from losing hope when they saw all of the horrible suffering Jesus was going to go through over the next week when they got into Jerusalem. Verse 3, suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. And we're going to hop to verse 4 real quick, but before we get to verse 4, I just want to point out that those who have died do not cease to exist. That's what I want you to see. Those who have died do not cease to exist. Moses and Elijah had died. Uh, Elijah, five, six hundred years before? Uh, Moses, what, a thousand years? I mean, I didn't look it up. You can Google it to find out. But hundreds and hundreds of years before Peter, James, and John are getting to see them, and now they're getting to see these two guys talking to Jesus, which is stinking cool. Verse 4, Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. So Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. They're hearing the conversation, and Peter awkwardly interrupts. Hey, Lord, excuse me. Hey, fellas, excuse me. You know, they're all talking to each other, and they, they all look at Peter, and he goes, hey, by the way, it's really good for us to be here. <laughs> I'm just thinking, if I'm James and John, I'm like, oh, my gosh, bro, you are so stinking awkward, right? Like, that's... Somebody interrupted and just go, hey, by the way, hey, thanks for inviting me to the party. Like for interrupting the person who invited you while they're talking to the host of the party, right? Uh, that's, that's just awkward. Let me finish what he says. He says, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. 
If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, which is really weird. It's odd that a Jewish person would make a memorial to another person. That would be idolatry unless the shelters that he's talking about is in reference to the festival of shelters where they would live outdoors for a period of time in remembrance of the 40 years they wandered in the desert homeless. So he says, hey, I'll make each one of you guys a tent if you guys want to stay over and, you know, sleep over for a little bit and stay here for a while. I'll build you guys of a place to live. But that's not the way that it goes because truthfully, as we find out later on in the scriptures, our lives are the memorials that God intends to be a picture of his presence in the world, which is pretty cool. So I'm wondering now if there's anything in your life that would be hiding that representation of God's work in the world. Or if there's anything that you know in your heart you should be doing that would be a reflection of God's presence in the world that you're not doing because of the inconvenience. But why were Moses and Elijah there? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, you might remember when Jesus, he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about the law and the prophets, and here's what Jesus said. He says, don't misunderstand why I came. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, that until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Who is the one who fulfills the purpose for which the law and the prophets were written? Who's the one that fulfills all of that? Jesus said, I did not come to abolish it. I came to what? I came to fulfill it. So who fulfills all of the law and the prophets? Jesus fulfills all of the law and the prophets. Who's the one who gave mankind the law of God? Moses. And who is the most powerful of all of the Jewish prophets? Did the most miracles, right? I think that'd be Elijah who was the protege of Elijah. Elijah, one of the most revered prophets in all of Jewish history. So here Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry, he says, uh, I'm going to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. And then at the end of his three and a half years, the physical representation of the law and the prophets comes to talk to Jesus. Because Moses wrote all of that about the Messiah. Elijah preached about the Messiah, but neither one of them had ever had the chance to meet him. So since Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of all of the law, the Torah, and the prophets, God is giving the representation of the law and the prophets an opportunity to see in the flesh what they had written about or who they had written about and preached about. And Peter, James, and John are getting to watch this, and all Peter is thinking is, Somebody needs to be taking a picture of this, right? Like that's, this is what's, what's happening. Luke chapter 9, verse 31, in its description of this, so it's Luke, not Mark. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 31, tells us what Jesus, Elijah, and Moses were talking about. You know what they were talking about, according to Luke? Uh, they were talking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which was happening about a week and a half, two weeks from then. That's what they were talking about. Why? Because everything before that was leading up to it. And everything after that is completely different because of it. 
The Apostle Paul said that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then all of our faith is in vain. Like everything, like Jesus is a good moral teacher, right? Whatever. But if Jesus rose from the dead of his own authority, then he's not just a good teacher, dude. He is who Isaiah said he would be. The baby that would be born, the son who would be given to us, who is called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. God in the flesh, reconciling mankind to himself. Having kept all of the rules on of the law, himself on behalf of all of those who've been doing nothing but breaking the Ten Commandments and being selfish to our fellow neighbors all of our lives. He keeps the rules for us. He fulfills the requirements that God set forth in the commandments that we couldn't keep so that we can get from Jesus what we did not earn. Innocence, immunity, holiness, and righteousness in the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. So naturally, when Moses and Elijah get to see Jesus for the very first time in all of history, this is all they want to talk about. This is, this is it. And that's what they talk about. And Luke is the one who tells us that, which I think is incredibly cool. Why were they talking to Jesus? Because they were the embodiment of the law and the prophets. So Jesus himself is giving the disciples, Peter, James, and John, a permanent, like, core memory of the law and the prophets, both pointing to the same person, Jesus. Verse 5. But as Peter spoke, Peter interrupts, he starts speaking this. As Peter spoke, a bright cloud, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly beloved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell down on the ground. Here's the problem. Peter was putting Jesus, Moses, and Elijah on the same level. He said, It's good for us to be here. We should build a memorial for this, one for each of you equally. And God the Father interrupts Peter in the middle of that to highlight the distinction between the three. Because these three dudes are not the same. So when he says, hey, one for each of you equally, God the Father goes, hey, bro. And this cloud overshadows them. I don't know if you've ever, I've driven in the mountains before and you drive up into a cloud, it's just fog. That's what it looks like. It's, it's fog, but it's a cloud. It's it's the same thing. So while he's talking, instantly, they're in the middle of a fog, deep fog. Peter shuts his mouth, and God's voice comes out of the fog. And the way I imagine this is that voice is everywhere around them. And God's not screaming this, but he's making it really clear. One of these dudes is different. different. And God says, at the end of Jesus' ministry, the exact same thing he says at the beginning of the ministry. When Jesus is baptized, the voice of God is heard to say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And at the end of his ministry, God says, God the Father says about God the Son, out of this cloud, this fog that they're in, this voice, I imagine it deep, resonating, and powerful. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And when the disciples hear it, Peter shuts his mouth. And instantly, bro, they're on the ground. 
Like instantly they're on the ground in sheer terror is what it says. Verse six, the disciples were terrified and fell face down uh, on, on the ground. Because Moses and Elijah are great, but they're always referred to in the Bible as servants of the Most High God. Jesus is completely together, completely and altogether different in that he's not a servant of God. He is the physical manifestation of God as the Son of the Father. And what does God tell them to do? Listen to him. Peter, shut your mouth. Like, this is the time to listen, dude, not to talk. I've n no one's ever said that to me before, ever, ever. Verse 7, then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah, and probably the fog, uh, was gone. And they saw only Jesus there. And the moment was, was over. Verse 9, as they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. That had to be the hardest secret in the entire world for Peter to keep for 12 more days. I mean, that had to be impossible. Oh my gosh. I mean, part of it might have been, well, who's going to believe this anyway? Right? And I'm not even sure why. May, at one commentator said, that the reason why Jesus may have told the disciples not to tell anybody until after the resurrection was because if they had talked about Jesus and his deity, then the contrast of Jesus as God in the flesh to Jesus as God on the cross might have caused the disciples or other followers of Jesus to have interfered. It's just somebody's opinion. I don't know if that's true. What I do know is true is that Jesus told them not to tell anybody until after the resurrection and they did that. Now, sometimes Jesus' touch healed people, but this time the Bible says that it strengthened them and brought them comfort. There are, there are powerful moments in our lives when we feel the presence of God. And sometimes we're healed and sometimes we're comforted and sometimes we're strengthened. But never do we get to stay there. Peter, James, and John didn't either. And these powerful moments are not frequent. We don't know that Peter was ever in the physical presence of God unveiled like that ever again. I do know that in Acts, Peter had a vision from God and was talking to God, but that was through a vision. That wasn't actually right here. I can reach out and grab Moses' arm or Elijah's arm. And Jesus, you're here in the middle. Like this is, this is, this was a, a once in a lifetime thing. And there's, looking back over my Christian experience, it's not frequent that I feel like I'm in the presence of God. And I think that's okay. We want to build our tabernacles, our shelters up on the top of those mountains so that we always feel the presence of God. My dad said one time in talking about a conversation he had had with one of his spiritual mentors, this lady in our church named uh, Aunt Emma, that he had said to Aunt Emma in her 90s, I'll bet after having walked with God since you were a little girl, she'd gotten saved when she was like seven or eight, for over 80 years, you experienced the presence of God unlike very few people on this planet. She said, Ron, the longer I've been a follower of Jesus, the less I have felt him and the more I've learned to trust him. Oh my 
gosh, that, that's, that's a mic drop moment right there, isn't it? Holy cow, somebody tweet that and tag Enema. Holy cow. Because it wouldn't be hard to trust God if you always saw him. It wouldn't be hard to put your faith in God if you always heard from him. It's, it's those moments in between. It's the six days of silence where our faith is actually developed, where I'm having to remember the things that God did, even when I'm not seeing anything that God is doing. It's in looking back over those, freak, those infrequent moments in my life where I've seen God at work that my faith is anchored even in the presence when I don't see God anywhere. Like faith is the confidence of what you can't prove, of what you can't see, Hebrews chapter 11 says. That's what faith is. It's knowing that if I jump off the diving board, the water will keep me from dying. It's that I continue to obey God and trust God even when things aren't going the way that I want, that God works all things out for his glory and my good. That's, that's faith. Like faith isn't grown on top of the mountain. Faith is grown after we've come off. It's in looking back. I had a conversation with uh, Moses. He's one of our executive pastors um, this past week. I think it was Moses. Anyway, the conversation was about answered prayer. And when God is answering a prayer in the moment, it always, it never feels like God is answering a prayer. It always feels like a coincidence. Like, that's just my experience, that I'll pray for something and then it happens. I go, well, that's a weird coincidence. In the moment, it always feels like a coincidence. It's after that moment when I look back that then I see the way that God had been working in my life all along. And that's what it looks like to live by faith. If you haven't had one of those God moments at all, you can have one now. You, you really could. If it's been a while, then you need to find your, your quiet place and you need to make it holy. And then once God speaks to you, you need to listen to him and do what he says. I think there's a possibility that some of us haven't heard from God in a long time because we haven't obeyed what he said the last time. Why is God going to give us new information to be disobedient with? So go back to the last thing that you know God had told you to do or what you had read in the scriptures what you heard in a sermon that convicted your heart that you knew you needed to do or stop doing and start there. But I'm gonna ask all of us, if you would, please to bow our head. God, I love you with all of my heart and I'm thankful that you love us. I'm thankful, God, that you want to be found. I love that verse that says that if we search for you with your whole, our whole heart, we will find you. God, for those who are part of the service today that are searching for you with their whole heart, they're looking for their first, quote unquote, you moment, God moment. God in heaven, please give that to them, please, in the name of Jesus. Your prayer would be, God, take away all of my sin. Dear Jesus, clean my heart. Take away every shadowy spot. Put your light in every dark, mildewy, shadowy place in my life. Dear God, I am turning from my selfishness. 
you took up a cross and laid down your life for me. I'm taking up a cross and I'm laying down my life for you. Help me, Jesus, to follow you with the rest of my life. Make this your holy moment. Make it your holy moment. Jesus, forgive me and save me from me. God, help me to follow you with the rest of my life. If you've already come to that place, when was the last time you heard from God? How often do you pull away from the crowds to talk with God? When was the last time you set aside private time to just read the Bible until you found a verse that meant something to you? Until you felt God was saying something to you? Man, might be a, it might have been a minute. Today, like, open up the Bible, read Matthew chapter 6, 16, 17. Just pick a book in the Bible, in the New Testament, which was written for the church, and start in chapter 1 and verse 1 and read slowly until you find a verse that pops out in your head. What does this say? What does this mean? And what should I do with it? That's it. And then do what he says. If there's something that you're holding back on God with, you need to let that go in the name of Jesus. Because your disobedience or sin in that area of your life is what's going to keep you from experiencing God in the rest of life. Like that has become the roadblock in your relationship with God, and only you can pull that out. So pull it out. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. God, take every part of us, every bit of us, make it holy. Fill us with your love, your light. Forgive us for all of the stupid ways in which we disobey you because we don't trust you enough to do it, you said. So we do things our own way. Convict us the next time we do it. Put in our head what we should be doing that we're not, or put in our head what we shouldn't be doing that we are. Helps to carve out time for you, alone, without any other distractions so that we can hear from you. And God, for those who are searching for you, let them be found. This is our prayer. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.